with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. And let me say, uh, Ben Watson, thank you for leading us in the Word last week with uh, such humility and firm love. That Word was for me and for all of us. And I hope that as we see in a few minutes, the Lord will use that Word to continue pruning us where we need it. If you missed last week, you can download Ben's message online, and I'd recommend you listen to it twice. All right, so John 15, Jesus is still preparing his disciples for his departure out of the world, and today we get a picture of the union he shares with his disciples, even when he's not physically present with them on earth. Anymore, there's a union he shares with them. It's like a vine, he says, supplying fruit bearing life to its branches. So, John 15, verse 1 I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine... You are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is precious to us. Um, I pray that you would use it this morning to prune away any pride or idolatry or sin, anything that is hindering us from drawing from all that the vine is. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we basically have one command in this passage, and that is seen very plainly in verse 4. Abide in me. That's your chief charge this morning. Abide in Jesus. It isn't first, go home and produce fruit for God's glory. It's simply... Abide in Jesus. And we'll look at what that means in a few minutes. But before we get to the command, abide in Jesus, I want you to get three precious truths that Jesus lays out in verses 1 to 3. You know, when I am with my son in a busy parking lot and I command my son, hold my hand. My son usually, grabs my hand, firm. The reason, though, that he grabs my hand is that he knows me. There are some truths that he has experienced in our relationship together that motivates him to grab my hand and hold it. Truths like, he's my daddy. Daddy loves me. Daddy protects me. Daddy's words are good for me. Daddy knows the dangerous consequences if I don't hold his hand. Daddy will discipline me if I rebel. These truths lead my hand, lead my son to grab my hand firmly as we weave in and out of the cars of a busy parking lot. What Jesus does in verses 1 to 3 is give us three precious truths that when we experience them, 
When, when, when these truths open our eyes to all that He is, they strengthen our grip on Jesus. They serve our abiding in Him. So let's look at them closely. Truth number one is this. Jesus is the true vine. We've seen this sort of language before in John's Gospel. Chapter 1, Jesus is the true light. Chapter 6, Jesus is the true bread. Now we've got Jesus saying, I am the true vine. And every time this has happened, we've seen that Jesus is not grabbing analogies out of thin air. Right? He is actually telling us who he is in light of God's revelation in the Old Testament. And sure enough, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where God symbolically calls Israel his vine. It's just that nearly every time God does call Israel his vine, the picture isn't very pretty. One of the things my brother enjoys doing with with his family is going to the vineyard and and picking uh, the various berries and uh, the pictures that he and his family have sent us have these lush, gorgeous vines in the background full of good fruit. That's not the picture you get when you read of Israel as God's vine in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, we see this, we get this picture of God planting a vineyard... And this vineyard, it says, is the house of Israel. But all Israel produces is good-for-nothing fruit. Wild grapes. Yuck. No matter how much God shows care for them, Israel keeps producing bad fruit. And he tells us in the rest of Isaiah 5 what that fruit is, what these wild grapes are unrighteousness, greed, and self-absorbed lifestyles, arrogant attitudes and cynicism toward God, perversion, all kinds of injustice and idolatry. Their lives were full of bad fruit. And what made the fruit so bad was that it wasn't bringing glory to God among the nations. That's what makes the fruit of people's lives, bad. It doesn't bring God glory among the nations. To where God says, enough of this, I will not be mocked among the nations. And so he destroys his vineyard. He breaks down the the walls that he had built up to protect it. He He breaks them down. He lets the thorns and briars choke out the vine. He cuts off the rain clouds. He lets in the wild boars, these foreign armies, in to to ravage the vine. And what we get is this pattern that the consequences of bad fruit is judgment from God. The consequences of bad fruit is judgment from God. We find a similar picture in Psalm 80. God plants Israel as a vine. Israel rebels and then God destroys the vine. And what this creates in the Old Testament's storyline, which is our storyline, if we're in Christ, it creates this huge tension because all of God's promises are bound up with the elect nation of Israel. It's like Paul says in Romans 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, God's promised Savior, If the vine of Israel is cut off, there's not only no hope for Israel, there's no hope for anybody. We're all doomed for judgment because of our sin, because of our bad fruit bearing. Unless there's another vine that would achieve what Israel never could achieve. Unless there is another vine that would bring God glory among the nations with all of the fruit 
it produced. Unless there was another vine, God would never again cut down. There are two places in the Old Testament where this becomes the expectation. Isaiah 27 is one place. It speaks of a day when the Lord, after eradicating evil, would make Israel into a pleasant vineyard. God would be the keeper of that vineyard and and no longer was He cutting off the rain clouds. No, He Himself would water Israel, this vine, with His own very life and presence with them. He would have no more wrath against that vineyard because the sins of the people would be atoned for. In fact, the only wrath that he would have left would be wrath to destroy all the enemies surrounding the vineyard. His wrath would be spent on protecting them, not destroying them. It would be a day when Israel would blossom and put forth shoots and, get this, fill the whole world with fruit that brings glory to God. In fact, instead of the bad fruit of idolatry, there'd be the good fruit of idol smashing. Gives you a picture of a Christian life. Part of our good fruit is idol smashing. Smashing. It says says they, they are to dust, to smash the idols among them like chalk dust. Poof! This is the fruit that Israel would bear when God again worked. So that's one place in the Old Testament, Isaiah 27, where there's an expectation for another vine to shoot forth in Israel after the old one was cut down. The other place is Psalm 80. In the prayers uh, and longings of Asaph. And one thing to remember about the prayers throughout the Psalms is that all of them are crying out for resolution, for God to save, for God to act, for God to judge, for God to bring all his purposes to pass. And our New Testament tells us that Jesus is the resolution, he is the answer to the prayers of the psalmist. Well, in Psalm 80, Asaph sees the vine of Israel destroyed, and he knows God's promises are bound up with this vine. And so he prays, Lord, turn again. O God of hosts, turn, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, which is Israel. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The nations have burned the vine with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. And then get this, Asaph says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So this is a picture we get in the Old Testament. Here's how it goes. Faithless Israel proves to be a bad vine. God judges them. But then he promises a new vine to come from Israel. And when this vine comes, God's wrath would turn away from the people who are connected to that vine. God's life would then run through that vine into his people so that the people produce good fruit. And all of this is based on the work God would accomplish through the Son of Man. When Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples, I am the true vine, he is saying that all those Old Testament promises and longings and prayers for Israel find their culmination in him. He's the one in whom all God's promises to Israel are yes and amen. He is the ultimate son of man. And as the son of man, he stands as the true Israel, the true stock unlike the faceless one. Everything Israel was supposed to be for the world and wasn't, Jesus is. And when God flexes his right arm through Jesus, he doesn't just look down from heaven and have regard for the vine. He comes down from heaven to be the vine. 
Unlike faithless Israel, Jesus bears good fruit in obedience to his Father's will at every turn. He comes to die in our place and avert God's wrath on the cross. He then rises from the dead to give us access to God's life. And when God plants him at his right hand in heaven, he produces good fruit in all his people by the Spirit so that one day his vine will fill the earth with the Father's glory. Being the true vine is another way for Jesus to say, I'm the real deal here. I'm the true life source for God's new people. You want to have God's life? You want to, then you have to be connected to me. All the Old Testament promises of things like forgiveness of sins, satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, the good fruit of idol-smashing true worship, Inheriting the earth as God's vine-like kingdom spreads from sea to sea. All of the promises, all of it is yours when you're united to Jesus. You've got to wonder why the Pharisees crucified him. They thought they were it. And now this man's coming in saying, I'm it. You've got to wonder what Israel thought. Who does this guy think he is? That's truth number one of why you should abide in Jesus. He is the true vine. The true Israel. Your only access to God. There is no other access to God's promises except what you find access to through Jesus Christ. And to all God's life-giving promises. Truth number two, the Father is a just and merciful vine dresser. He says in verse one, My Father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, two actions the Father takes away fruitless branches. And the Father prunes, he, he prunes the fruitful branches. He is just in that he judges those who do not bear fruit, and he is merciful in that he prunes those who do bear fruit. Let's look at that more carefully. He is just in that he takes away the fruitless branches. Part of the Father's work as the vine dresser is judgment. And this is the eternal condemnation of fruitless people. People whose lives continue to look like is, uh, faithless Israels did in the Old Testament. They don't bear fruit for God's glory. They don't care about God's glory. And the Father's work is judgment. And we know this taking away is judgment because of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered into the fire and burned. And this shouldn't surprise us, especially in light of what we saw in the Old Testament. The pattern in the Old Testament is that bad fruit deserves God's judgment. It has severe consequences. And the reason for those severe consequences is that God will not be mocked. He is on an unstoppable mission to flood the earth with His glory and destroy anything that raises its hand against His glory. He alone is worthy to be praised. And if people's lives don't reflect His worth, if they don't reflect His holiness and beauty and sovereignty, then He is just to condemn them. That should sit on you as a very sobering reality. No fruit for God's glory means eternal fire. Now, I know some people use verse 2 to say that genuine believers can be cut off from Christ and lose their salvation. I mean, after all, verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But I think that interpretation makes nonsense of the rest of the passage, which says very plainly that when a branch abides in Jesus, it most certainly will bear fruit. 
and it diminishes the glory of Christ, as if to say there are people linked to Jesus' life that don't actually bear good fruit. And it ignores texts like John 6, 39, where Jesus says, I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. And probably most significantly, it overlooks a crucial theme running throughout John's gospel, which is this. There are disciples loosely affiliated with Jesus, but without any real connection to his life. We see this again and again. People are uh, seek, coming after Jesus, but Jesus isn't entrusting himself to them because he knows what's in them. They're just seeking the miracles. They're just seeking the bread. They're following him. John's gospel even calls them disciples. But one by one, we see these disciples falling away as Jesus keeps speaking his words. We see it once in chapter 6. There's a whole slew of people after the feeding of the bread. Chapter 6, verse 66, we don't like these words. We're out of here. Save 12 of them, and one of them still the devil. So one by one, we see them falling away as Jesus keeps speaking his words. The most recent example in John's gospel being Judas Iscariot. In some sense, he was in Jesus without actually being connected to his fruit-bearing life. Judas bore bad fruit. Jesus' word cuts him off. Chapter 13, verse 27. So I don't buy it when people say verse 2 undermines a believer's assurance of final salvation. Those who are connected to the vine will really bear fruit and experience eternal life. But that doesn't make the reality of eternal judgment for a fruitless life any less sobering. For any of us. And it shouldn't. This passage confronts us all with the question, am I just loosely affiliated with Jesus? Going through the motions of Christianity? Trying to live up to the moral standards of this or that without any life of Christ in here? Without actually being in Side connected to the vine, his sap flowing through my branch. Good deeds that look Christian on the outside mean nothing if there's no vital connection to Jesus. Merely agreeing with Jesus or merely having ideas about Jesus in us means nothing if Jesus himself isn't in us. Having Jesus in us is the fruit of the new birth. The new transformation that takes place inside. When the sap of his life feeds your needy soul. And the Father's just work of judgment confronts us. And it places our assurance in the proper place. In Christ alone. Not in anything we perform or anything we think or anything we feel. Our assurance is in Jesus. If you abide in Christ, there is no condemnation left for you. He absorbed it in his body on the tree. And he rose from the dead to give you life by the Spirit and produce all kinds of God-glorifying fruit in you. Listen, abiding in Jesus keeps you from living the kind of life that would send you to hell. Does that make sense? When you abide in Jesus, His life is flowing through you, all kinds of fruit, there's no reason for God to cut cut you off. Because you're bringing Him glory among the nations. You have assurance of faith insofar as you are linked to Jesus. And the Father's work of judgment reminds us of this. So if you step back and look at your life and see no fruit bearing unto God's glory, one question you need to ask yourself is, am I connected to Jesus? That's why John wrote this. 
These things are written in order that you might believe and that by believing you might have life. Sorry, you've got to know what to believe, don't you? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. It is not writing about judgment to keep you cut off. He's writing about judgment so you believe in Christ and get grafted into the vine. So you need to ask, am I connected to Jesus? These things are written to make sure you are. And if you are, then you need to be asking, how can you draw more from His life? And if you're not, turn away from your sins and trust in Christ, and you will be. The Father is also merciful in that He prunes the fruitful branches. Every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is truly an act of mercy because on the one hand, nobody deserves to be in the vine to begin with. None of us deserve to be in the vine to begin with. That anybody is in the vine is by sheer mercy. But it's also merciful that the Father is so willing to work in us to produce the very fruits He expects from us. I want you to bear fruit for God among the nations. And here's what I'm I'm going to work in you so that you actually do it. This is the kind of Father we, we have. And the way He works in us is by pruning. Now some explain this pruning in terms of the various trials and sufferings. God brings into our lives to test us and refine us and conform us to Christ's image. The trials are seen as the tool that God uses to prune us and and make us bear more fruit. And I want to say yes and amen to that truth which is taught all over the places in our Bibles like James 1 and Hebrews 12 and Romans 5 and 8. But alongside, so, so what that means is on the one hand, yeah, none of you, not a single trial in your life is in vain. The Father does use it to prune you, to make you more like Jesus. But alongside this tool of trials is also the tool of God's Word, which is what I think Jesus has in mind here. The tool the Father uses to prune us in this passage is His Word. You can't see the connection as clearly in your English translations, but there's a play on words here in Greek between verses 1 and 3. And the Greek word behind he prunes in verse 2 is very similar to the Greek word behind you are clean in verse 3. And so the idea of pruning, the Father's pruning, and Jesus' cleansing you... They are conveying similar ideas. The pruning is the cleansing. The cleansing is is the pruning. And verse 3 links that cleansing work to Jesus' word. To Jesus' word. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the idea of pruning and cleansing, you should see, is conveying similar ideas. Then later in verse 7, we see that Jesus will talk about His words abiding in us. This is how you abide in Jesus, if His words abide in you. And then throughout John's Gospel, it has been the Father's Word, which has been spoken through Jesus, that has been binding the disciples to the vine. We'll get to that in a minute. And pruning them. And so I think the tool the Father uses to prune us so that we bear more fruit is His Word given to us through Jesus. That puts some perspective on your Bible reading, does it not? We don't don't come to read this book as merely a piece of literature. We don't come to read this book as merely a a source for our theological pontifications. We don't come to this book to mess around. We come to this book 
to be pruned. We come on Sunday morning and with our care group members, we, we come, when we're talking about the Word together, we're coming to the Word to be pruned, to be cut, to be laid bare by the Father's knife so that more fruit would come. We want His Word to cut off our idols. We want His Word to lop off our remaining pride. We want His Word to penetrate into our motives and expose our foolish passions and get them out. And that hurts because where there is pruning, there is dying. Dying to self to see more of Christ living in you. And I see the Father's Word cutting on some of you. It cut on me last week when Ben was preaching. That word from Matthew 25 of being mindful of Jesus' coming. That wasn't just a word for the inactive people. That was a word for all of us who are really active and not being mindful of Jesus' coming. The Father's Word pruned me in that moment so that I would treasure Jesus more and be driven in all that I do to treasure His coming more. And I know the Word is cutting on others of you. You have shared with me how it is difficult to follow God's Word when it means you're severed from something you want so badly. But you give it up for Jesus' sake. You need to know those pruning words come to you from a merciful Father to help you experience more of the vine's life. The pruning may hurt now, but trust the merciful vine dresser. His cuts are always wise, straight. His cuts are always full of grace that will also heal the wounds so that you bear more fruit. So trust Him. He wants to see you blossom with His Son's beauty and the world to taste the fruit of knowing Jesus through your life. So why bother with any other vine, right, that this world might offer? When you abide in Jesus, you not only have access to God's life and His promises, but now He also will care for you with His Word and help you bear the God-glorifying fruit you need to in all your circumstances. That's truth number two. The Father is a just and merciful vine dresser. Truth number three, Jesus' words bind His disciples to Himself. Jesus' words bind His disciples to Himself, for He is the vine. The words of verse three must have been so precious to the Uh, remaining 11 disciples, because everybody else has checked out. And they're being tempted with whether they should check out too. And now they're hearing words about the Father judging and burning fruitless branches. How are they going to remain in Jesus when the air of desertion is so thick? Then Jesus says this to them, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already. Those are sweet words. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now he's talking about what he told them in chapter 13. You can look there with me. Glance over to the other page. Chapter 13, verses 10 to 12. Jesus Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. And He's done this to point them to His cleansing work on the cross where He will wash away their sins. And He says this in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash. He's basically telling Peter, 
look, man, you don't need to wash your head and your feet. What I'm about to do for you is sufficient. My cross is sufficient. So the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. There it is when he tells them. That's the word he spoke to them. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And now Jesus is reminding them again. Listen, Judas is gone. That's because he wasn't clean. You are already clean. By my word. And by what I'm going to do for you on the cross. He's saying, basically, I already declared you completely clean by virtue of my love for you. You don't need to fear being cut off and thrown into the fire. My word has bound you to myself. My life is already flowing through you, and you will bear fruit for my Father's glory. My cross and resurrection will seal it. In fact, my election has planned it. Look at first chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. He's talking to the eleven. That you should go and bear fruit. You ain't going to be like Judas. I chose you for a different reason. To bear fruit. You're in me. I cleansed you. My word bound you to myself. Now you're going to bear fruit. No need to fear. My election planned it. My cross and resurrection seal it. My word is guaranteeing it. He's chosen them for fruit, not destruction. If you believe in Jesus this morning, the same is true for you. He has chosen you for fruit. He has cleansed you to bear fruit. He has bound you to the vine. So that his life is carried through you. Folks, if you have heard the word of the gospel, the good news that Jesus' death cleanses you from sin, if you have heard that word and believed in it and you delight in it, you treasure that word, such so you know you have no hope without that word, then you are in the vine and you were chosen to bear fruit for God. The word of Jesus is sufficient to bind you to the vine. There's nothing lacking in Jesus' word because there's nothing lacking in Jesus' work backing that word. What he said, he did. You are clean, and I did it on the cross. So everything you need to be in the vine, he's done for you. And his word reveals everything you need to be grafted in. If you haven't believed his word, then I would exhort you to believe in it. And the Father will be more than happy to join you to Jesus that his life might also flow through you. That's truth number three. Jesus' word binds his disciples to himself. Everything you need to be in the vine, he has done. Which means what's left for you? Abide in Him. He's done it all. You're in if you believe in Christ. Now abide and His sap's going to flow through you and all kinds of God-glowing fruit is going to fill your life. So these three truths, with these three truths in mind, a, a tr- true vine, a just and merciful vine dresser, and a binding word... It makes every sense in the world that we would obey Jesus' command to abide in me. Abide in... always sounds weird when you quote Jesus in the first person. Not abide in me, but abide in Him. You know what I mean? Why would we choose to do anything else? In Jesus, we find everything for life and joy and hope and salvation. The whole Old Testament has told us this. In Jesus, we find safety from the wrath of God. In Jesus, the Father nurtures and cares for His people. In Jesus, we find a cleansing word that's better than all other words. 
And when Jesus is all these things for us, what else can abide mean than to live in constant dependence on Him? That's how branches in a vine live. Right, Todd? Yes. Todd has his degree in horticulture. Todd knows what's going on in this passage. He's going to get all giddy at care group. All right? Branch, that's how branches live. They're not off by their lonesome self trying to produce fruit. They're just drawing from the vine. They live in constant dependence on the vine and all that's in him. They receive all that's in the main stock. Same for you and me. That actually hurt my abs. <laughs> What'd you say? Self-righteousness hurts. There we go. That's a good... That's good. Somebody can tweet that probably. Yeah. So Jesus says it like this in verses 4 to 5, right? Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we'll see next week, it's not mean you can't do anything, like breathe. It means you can do nothing to glorify the Father. Abiding in Jesus means you live in constant dependence on all that He is. Not in constant dependence on all that you are or all that you think you can be, but in constant dependence on Jesus. Listen, the vine is Christ, and all there is in the vine is for the benefit of the branches. That's the way J.C. Ryle put it. That means in any and every situation, you have immediate access to all of God's heavenly blessings. If you are united to Jesus by faith, everything He is is yours to draw from moment by moment by moment. I'll give you some examples. In Christ, you have access to all the wisdom you need to lead your household well. You know, when you have one of those days where your your wife wants you to lead her, you're afraid, you you don't really know how, and so you hold back. Or, Or maybe you give it a shot and you say things poorly. Now there's all this ice in the air. I mean, if that happens with you guys, of course... Both of you can draw from Jesus for wisdom in that moment and for humility and for more grace and compassion towards the other spouse. And he will grant it. That might mean he prunes you first. And you're the one that's got to leave the kitchen to go say, I'm sorry. But he will grant it. Or in Christ, you have all the access you need to, or you have access to all the grace you need to endure trials and suffering. Whether that's an infection in your foot, or the loss of a loved one, or persecution. In Christ, we can draw confidence that no trial comes to us apart from a loving Father's hand. The fact that we're in the vine should remind us of that. It should remind us of the cross that joined us to the vine to begin with. And the cross stands as the emblem of God's love. 
And because of the cross, we can lean upon Jesus' power to endure whatever trial or suffering comes to us. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured hostility from sinners, not just in order that you might follow him in his example, but in order that we might not grow weary and lose heart. His cross is supplying the branches with all they need to endure. Being in the vine should also remind us of Jesus' resurrection life in the midst of suffering. The vine's life isn't coming from the grave. It's coming from heaven, where Jesus is. And that gives us hope in the midst of a hurt foot for a day when there will be no hurt foot. And the loss of a loved one at the resurrection and persecution will send us into glory. Whatever it may be, these things about the life coming from a resurrected Christ helps us endure. Or, in Christ, you have access to all the strength you need to overcome your sinful anger. You may have certain people in mind in your life that you're angry at. The problem with us normally is we want to bear fruit. We want to overcome our anger. The issue is that a lot of times we're so fixed on the anger and we're so fixed on cutting off the anger, we're never abiding. It's like the Puritans said, for every one look you take at your sins, take ten, take a hundred looks to Christ, and abide there. So when you're reminded of of your anger against this situation or this person, you can abide in Jesus in those moments... And you can draw from things like the vine's justice. Not a single sin will be overlooked. Every sin will be paid for, either on the cross through Jesus' blood or in the lake of fire. That frees you from trying to take matters into your own hands and try to mete out justice in your limited ability. God's got it covered. So you draw from his justice in those moments and say, enough, I don't have to be the one solving this. Then you can also draw from his grace, the same grace that God showed you, even though you angered him with your own sins. And that frees you to be able to pray for your enemies and serve them even in the face of great disappointment. In Christ, you have access to all the patience you need to shepherd your children in the midst of chaos. Right? You know those days when you got home later than you thought, and everybody is hungry, the meat isn't thawed yet, there's a diaper that needs changing, and you think you just heard a splash of some sorts coming from the direction of the refrigerator, followed by an, uh-oh, you better get mama. I think dads might have experienced something like this about 5 o'clock last Saturday evening when all of our wives were at the retreat, right? But in those moments, you abide. You cast yourself on Jesus. You pick up the poopy kid and you pray, Colossians 1.10, on your way to the refrigerator. Lord, strengthen me with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In Christ, you have access to all the boldness you need to speak of Christ to others. You know, I've shared stories up here before of me sharing the gospel with others. You need to know that doesn't come naturally. What naturally comes is fear or doubt or even Jonah-like rebellion. See somebody I know I should share the gospel with come into the door. I'm out of here. That's what comes naturally. 
And in those moments, I have to abide. I have to start drawing from the vine if my Father is going to receive glory. I have to abide every Sunday I speak up here. I get nervous speaking in front of people. It's not my first preference. It's just a great opportunity to talk about Jesus. But every Sunday, John 15, 5 is my prayer. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, Jesus, I am nothing. You are everything. Glorify yourself through me. And then go. In Christ, you have access to all the forgiveness you need to put to rest any fears of God's wrath against you. Right? Before you sin, when you sin, and after you sin, you can draw from the root of God's forgiveness in Christ. And that frees you to be able to confess your sins, not only to the Lord, but to those you have sinned against. In Christ, you have access to all the acceptance you need before God that dispels the fear of man. When you're tempted to shrivel up in front of a superior at the office, draw from the identity given you in Jesus, you are seated with Him in the heavenly places. And what more could you ask for? doesn't matter what they think of you. If this is what God thinks of you, In Christ, you have access to all His joy so that you can enjoy the things the way Christ Himself does. Look at John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, His joy, may be in you and that your joy may be full. So I could go on, but I hope these few examples help you see what it means to abide in Jesus, to live in constant dependence on Him, to to draw from Him moment by moment. Jesus lacks in nothing that we need. Everything we need to glorify God in any moment is found in Jesus, the true vine. More than that, His Father works for our good too. He will prune you as you remain in the vine and make you more and more able to bear good fruit. And what He already began by uniting you to the vine, He will also finish. So abide in Jesus, live in constant dependence on Him, and your life will bring God much glory.